And let's stand and take our Bibles to the book of Jeremiah, chapter number 18. Are you glad to be in the house of the Lord? If you're here uh, because uh, at home there's no AC, that's, all, that's okay too. You know, it's been hot past couple days, and uh, we should have had services Monday and Tuesday to get people out of their homes without, or without AC and get back to church and all that. Uh, and if you're, not, uh, if you're just getting here and you didn't see or, or, or hear our announcement, a uh, pastor uh, is at Spiritual Leadership Conference, and he's making his way back with uh, Mrs. Fong and the other delegates. Be in prayer for them that God would give him safety, but also be in prayer for those who responded uh, in, uh, with salvation decisions this past Sunday. Uh, we're, we have confirmed about three salvation decisions, and we praise the Lord for that. Jeremiah chapter number 18. Pray for me if you could. I'm battling a cold right now, and so as I'm preaching, I hope that you pray for me that God would give me strength, be able to deliver uh, his word with clarity. Chapter number 18 of the book of Jeremiah, if there is, say amen. amen. The Bible says, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he, the potter, wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he had made of clay was marred in the hands of the potter. So he made it, again, another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation? And concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instance I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it. If it, the nation, do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. Now therefore, go to, speak, go to speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I frame evil against you and devise a device against you. Return ye now every one from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. Would you take a moment to read verses 4 to 6 out loud with me, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and then I'll let you guys be seated. And we'll dive into the word of God this evening. Verse number four, all together, all the way to verse number six. Ready, begin. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. Notice in verse number four, where the Bible says, And the vessel that he made of clays was marred, notice this phrase, in the hand of the potter. And in verse number six, God speaks to the nation of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, and he says, Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye, God's people, are in his hands, in mine hand, God says, O house of Israel. Tonight I want to preach a message simply entitled, The Potter and the Clay. 
hope this is, will be a blessing to you. Don't plan to keep you long. But I do pray that God will speak to your heart, or at least that you'll let him speak to your heart and allow his word to change you into Christ's likeness this evening. Lord, thank you so much for allowing us to study your word. Guide us in all that we study tonight, in all that we learn and hear. We pray for liberty on behalf of the Holy Spirit to do uh, exactly what you want to do in each of our hearts. Lord, people are coming today with heavy burdens uh, that they're carrying. We pray for that burden to be lifted up. We pray, Lord, for those who are coming here today with worries and anxieties and, uh, and fret, Lord. We pray that they would find peace in Jesus Christ and his word. We pray for those, Lord, who maybe are, uh, are, are a little bit uh, 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 passive or a little bit indifferent towards you and, and what you're wanting to do in their life uh, tonight and even this summer or this year. We pray, Lord, that they would be rekindled and revived, that they would sense the Holy Spirit working in their heart, that they would be revitalized spiritually. We pray for those who, Lord, maybe are on the verge or have gone over the edge of sin and are in the world or maybe are struggling, battling with the flesh and are defeated day after day. We pray, Lord, that they would find forgiveness and restoration back to Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, tonight that you'd strengthen my body, my voice, and my thoughts, Lord, that they would come exactly uh, from you, that everything that I say would be exactly how you want me to say it and what to say. Uh, we pray, Lord, that your word would come alive and speak to all of our hearts. Guide me now, Lord. I need you. I desperately need you tonight. Please use me as I preach and teach your word. And I ask now that you'd work in all of our hearts. And most importantly tonight, we pray that you would be glorified in all that is said and done. We love you and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. You may be seated. The book of Jeremiah is one of the most colorful books in the Bible. It's filled with narratives, prophecies, historical accounts, and practical lessons for believers to learn and grasp. As you read the book of Jeremiah, you'll learn that his ministry was not easy in any way. In fact, that was a prophet's job. The prophet's job was to minister to the people of God, the nation of Israel and the, Judah, uh, the nation of Judah in order to get them back to the Lord. And oftentimes a prophet is not well accepted. Oftentimes a prophet is either turned down or rejected. Oftentimes prophets are casted out of the town because they didn't receive the message that God had given them. Jeremiah was such a prophet. Jeremiah was a man of God. Jeremiah was a, was a messenger that declared God's word without compromise uh, and, and without hesitation. The prophet uh, Jeremiah has seen Israel in all sorts of conditions. He has seen Israel in her good days and in her bad days. He has seen Israel in the conditions of revival and in conditions of ruin. He was there when Josiah reigned in Judah and, when, uh, and was instrumental in bringing Israel back to spiritual righteousness. But he was also there when uh, the Babylonian kingdom uh, had invaded Israel and had invaded Jerusalem and took people captive and brought them back to Babylon. Jeremiah, if you know your Bible, if you know uh, uh, the study around him and his life, is also known as the weeping prophet. Uh, he's the author of the book of Jeremiah, but he's also the author of the next book, the book of Lamentations, and, and, and that exactly uh, uh, describes him uh, properly uh, uh, regarding how he dealt with his ministry and regarding the, uh, the things that he faced in his ministry. Uh, he's often uh, quoting how he had great, angri uh, great anguish and pain and mourning and how he experienced many restless nights and many uh, 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 endless tears as he served the Lord there uh, in the nation of Israel. 
uh, this prophet is also known for several object lessons. In fact, you might want to write these down in your notes. There are several uh, uh, object uh, lessons that God had uh, called uh, Jeremiah to do and to, and to start uh, using as illustrations to the nation of Israel. Take, for example, chapter number 13 of the book of Jeremiah. God tells Jeremiah to take a linen girdle. And he told that linen girdle, which was a, a, like a belt or a sash that kept his clothes together, uh, God told Jeremiah to take that linen girdle and, and to put it under a rock in, uh, in time that that girdle would get dirty and would get marred. And he would take it out again and it would become unuseful. And, and that's exactly how he wanted to proclaim to uh, the Israelites how they had become. Uh, he said that you have become unuseful. You become dirty by the world. You become marred and you can no longer bring glory to God. In chapter number 19, God told Jeremiah to grab a broken vessel. He said to take a vessel and to drop it, and that vessel had broken into different shards. And God said to Jeremiah, he says, Jeremiah, use this as an illustration to the condition of the Israelites, how they are broken and they are, uh, uh, it's unlikely that they would be able to be restored like how they used to be. In chapter number 24, God told Jeremiah to use uh, a, 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 an illustration of, of fruits in a basket. There were two baskets, and uh, there were baskets of figs, and one basket had good figs, the other basket had bad figs, and he said, uh, uh, Jeremiah used this as a sermon illustration to tell the Israelites that the good figs symbolize those who will survive uh, the exile and the captivity of Babylon, and, and uh, the bad figs are those who are going to be ruined and destroyed during that time. And so when you study the book of Jeremiah, lots of passages to study, lots of things to learn, uh, and the sermon illustrations that God told Jeremiah to use were definitely effective uh, for that day and also for ours. Now, I want to focus on the sermon illustration that we find in Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18 gives us the illustration or the object lesson of the vessel in the hand of a potter. From this passage that we're covering today, I believe we can learn much with regards to who God is and what God desires for our lives as his people. We can learn about who he wants us to be. We can learn about how he wants that process to be accomplished. We can learn how to steward the changes that God has placed in our lives and how, most importantly, our lives could bring him glory. Isaiah 64 verse 8 says this, But now, O Lord, thou art our father, we are the clay, and thou art our potter, and we all are the work of thy, hand, of thy hand. Tonight, I want to start off our message with a simple statement that I hope will ring true in your hearts as we go throughout our lesson this evening. The statement is this, God is the potter, and we are the clay. All that he desires, we must obey. God is the potter, and we are the clay. All that God desires, we must obey. And so with that thought, I want to take three lessons tonight in order to help us learn about God, the potter, and us, his clay. First and foremost, as you're taking notes tonight, notice with me how God is watching. My son um, has developed many new hobbies. Uh, he, he knows if you ask him, uh, if you ask him, Kai, where's your nose? He's going to smile and he's going to point to his nose. You ask him where his eyes are, he's going to point to his nose. <laughs> you ask him where his head is, he's going to point to his nose. And he's learning a lot of new things, and we're excited for that. But there is one thing that my wife and I sort of uh, see, uh, uh, want to correct uh, that he started developing. Uh, every time we go out to eat and we're at a restaurant or a fast food place uh, and we sit him down at our table, he begins to people watch. 
You guys know what I'm talking about? Like stare at people that he does not know. Now, some of you guys do that, okay? You don't even know, but some of you guys do that. Can I tell you, that's, that's not good, <laughs> okay? <laughs> some people take offense to that, and people like their privacy. Uh, and you think about my son. We're trying to teach him, Kai, stop looking, right? And we're saying sorry to the people that he's been staring at for minute after minute, right? We try to turn his chair around so that he's not facing them. He'll just turn himself around and stare right back. And we try closing his eyes, and he'll try to fight us and open his eyes. And we're trying to teach him that people uh, need to uh, be respected and their privacy uh, need to be respected. And, you know, people are concerned about the matter of privacy, and rightfully so. Privacy matters. You think about privacy with your phone security, right? Uh, you think about this whole issue with Alexa. How many of you guys have an Alexa device in your home? Can I see your hand? I have one. They say that Alexa is listening to you and that they're recording you and that they're listening to your conversations, and that's why you're getting... I don't know, I'm just trying to mess with you guys there. Uh, you think about laptop and the webcams and the phones and all that. People are concerned about their privacy. You know, I've never been invited to someone's home where they said, Erwin, you could have free access into my entire house. Why? Because they want to have some privacy. We may like our privacy as people, and we like privacy to, keep, to be kept by other people, but with God, there's no such thing as privacy. With God, we can't tell him, you know, Lord, I appreciate you helping me out in this area of my life, but these other areas, I need you to sort of stay away from. We can't tell God that he has limitations or uh, are not able to access air certain areas of our life. Privacy doesn't exist with God. God is watching you. God is looking at you. Even right now, as you're listening to this message, God knows your thoughts. God knows exactly what you did the moment you woke up today, the moment you got out of your bed, the moment you left your house, and all the things that you did throughout your time this morning, this afternoon, and this evening. God is watching you, and I am reminded of Proverbs 5.21, for the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all his goings. Proverbs 15.3, the Bible says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. You know, you can try to hide, but God still sees you. You can try to run, but God still finds you. You can try to lie, but God knows the truth. You can try to cover things up, but God still knows everything. Just ask Adam and Eve. Ask David and Jonah. Ask Achan or Gehazi. God is watching, and he sees everything, and God knows all. With that, though, for the Christian that is living in sin, that's very convicting. But for the Christian that is fully submissive to God and that desires to have God's presence in their life, that's actually quite comforting. To know that God is watching me, it's a very comforting thought. You know, if you're doing something bad, you don't want people to know, so you try to hide it. But when you're doing things right, you want people to see. And that's the same thing with God. God delights in our lives when he sees us doing good. And so when with that thought, I want to start this, this matter with the proper perspective. A potter, before beginning his or her work, will carefully take a block of clay that is available and begin to examine in all angles of that clay, he'll be, he or she will begin to turn it side to side, up or down, front or back. And what that potter is doing is it's beginning to analyze, to look for anything that is inconsistent, anything that may not work for its purpose, 
or things that he may struggle with regarding the moment of shaping. God wants to examine you. In fact, whether you like it or not, God is examining you right now. He knows you. He knows everything about you. There's nothing that you can hide from God. Your thoughts, your desires, your dreams, everything about you, God knows. God knows your heart. You may not even know your own heart, but God knows it. Oftentimes, we're fooled by our own hearts, aren't we? In fact, whoever said, trust your heart, doesn't know the Bible. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. And so when you think about your own heart, you may not even know what's inside. You may not even know the thoughts that are creeping within your heart. You may not even know the desires that are there. God knows everything about your heart. God knows your plans and your dreams, your fears and your struggles. God knows your strengths and your weaknesses. God knows what makes you happy. He knows what makes you sad. God knows everything about who you are. You think about how God knows your heart, but also God knows your history. Oftentimes, people are ashamed to talk about their past. They're afraid to uh, trigger thoughts that were traumatic uh, in their experience of growing up, things that were recent or things that happened many years ago. And oftentimes, when people talk about their past, they refuse to go back to maybe that one memory or certain memories. God knows those memories. God knows your past. He knows where you came from. He knows how you got there. He knows everything about you, your failures and your regrets, your victories and your successes, your present situation. God knows everything about you. In fact, David put it this way in the book of Psalms 139, verses 1 to 4. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it all together. You know, it's amazing to sort of ponder the thought that God knows everything about you. But you want to know what's even more amazing than that? Is the fact that God still loves you. The God who knows you best still loves you most. The God that knows your failures still wants to be with you, still desires to be close to you, desires to love you and invest in you, and desires to welcome you into his presence. And so like this potter who's examining this clay, yes, he sees the dirt, yes, he sees the mar, yes, he sees all the broken pieces of this block of clay, but he doesn't throw it away. We see now a promising potential. After careful examination, the potter begins to envision the goal for this block of clay, no matter what condition it is presently in. You know, God is the same way. God doesn't want to throw anybody away. God is not wanting to take somebody who, and look at them and says, man, this, this is useless. This is, this is far too uh, uh, incapable of being restored or repaired. God doesn't say that. God sees potential in you. Despite of all your inadequacies and failures and mistakes, God still wants to accomplish his will for your life. What an amazing thought. What an amazing God. 
to know that he desires to work in us no matter what condition our lives are found in. God sees in you what others do not see. God sees in you what you cannot see. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, thoughts of, uh, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. God is not going to throw you away, so don't give up on him because he never gave up on you. He wants to take you in and to bring out the best in you. God sees potential in you. Now, what is potential? Potential in Webster's Dictionary defines the word as existing in possibility, capable of development into actuality. Now, I want to clarify something because sometimes we think of the word potential and when we use it spiritually, we begin to skew our understanding of it. What do I mean by, by the statement that God sees potential in you? Is it the potential of you becoming a great individual? Does God see in you the potential of being some high-profile person who is saturated with fame and popularity? Is it the potential of being talented or skilled, a person who is well-accomplished? Or is it the potential of being a really well-respected Christian who is consistent in their church attendance and who are involved in multiple ministries? Actually, it's none of these. Those are not the def definition or description of the type of potential that God sees in you. The potential that God sees in you is this. He sees in you the potential to give him glory. The potential that God sees in you is your life being a platform where he would be reflected. That's why he could take anybody, wherever they're from, no matter what condition their life is in, and make it something better. Because without God, they had no glory. Without God, there was no purpose. Without God, there was nothing to glory in. There was nothing to boast about. Without God, there was no honor. Without God, there was no value. But yet God says, look, I want to take my life, God says, and reflect it out of your life. The potential that God sees in you is the potential to showcase who he really is. God, listen to me, God is not interested in making you great or successful. Forget this notion of this prosperity gospel where if you follow God, then you'll be well off to do. God is not interested in making you rich or famous. God is not interested in making you talented or attractive. The only thing that God is interested in is in your life allowing him to bring glory out of it. He wants your life to give him praise and honor. He wants your life to show to other people how good he really is. He wants your life to be a testimony of his mercy, grace, and love. He wants your life to be a testimony that God is faithful to keep all of his promises. God sees in your life the potential to bring glory to his name. You know, God created the heavens so that he would be glorified. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. 
God created us human beings so that we could glorify him. In Revelations 4.11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Did you know that Jesus Christ came to earth to die, a sinless sacrifice, uh, to die as a sinless sacrifice so that he would glorify the Father? In John 17.1, Jesus said these words, spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee. And so you think about the purpose that God has given Jesus Christ, the purpose to why God has created you and I, the purpose uh, the, that God created the world is to bring him glory. Our chief duty in life is to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of who? God. That's the potential that he sees in you. So don't misinterpret when I tell you that God sees potential in you. God is not interested in you doing great things for him. He's interested in doing great things through you so that you and I can never take the glory for what he has done. We see here that God is watching. He's watching and looking at a clay, a block of clay that he could take, and he sees the potential of what it could be and how it could reflect the glory of the potter. We see that God is watching, but secondly, notice with me how God is working. Notice in verse number three of our passage, if you could, Jeremiah 18. It says in verse number three, then I went down to the potter's house and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. Whether you've, done, whether you've done pottery or not, there is one thing that you can expect with this type of projects or work or craftsmanship. When you're working with clay and trying to make vessels, you can expect that the process takes time. Potters are very patient when they work with clay. They don't rush the process. They know that quality time is required if the clay is to turn into the right vessel. Can I remind us this evening that God is not in a rush? God is patiently working in you. He wants to take his time. God is taking his time with the necessary process in order to turn you into the right vessel. Philippians 1.6, we find the Apostle Paul writing, Be co being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you, will, perfor will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. How is this process laid out? How does God take us from a block of clay and turn us into a vessel useful for his work? Well, I notice, first and foremost, that there is a fixed standard. We mentioned that your life has the potential to give God glory. Now, just stop and think about that for a second. You have the potential to glorify God. What a sobering thought that you who is one out of several billions, you who people may not know, you who ha are filled with weaknesses, have the opportunity to glorify God. Now, I want to ask the question, what's the best way that our lives could glorify God? 
Well, if you study the Bible, the best way to glorify God is simple. Resemble Jesus Christ. You see, God's goal for every Christian is Christ-likeness. We often measure our spirituality by church attendance, amount of ministries we're involved in. God measures your spiritual life to his son, Jesus Christ. Do you look like Jesus? Do you love like Jesus? Do you forgive like Jesus? Do you serve and give and sacrifice like Jesus does? You see, if you want God to be glorified, you're going to have to allow him to transform you into Christ-likeness. Ephesians 4 says, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect or mature man, notice this, unto the measure or standard of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Are you more like Jesus today than you were yesterday? Are you more like Jesus today than you were last year? Hard to believe we're in the month of June. And in six months, it'll be a new year. And I'm reminded about the Apostle Paul's writing in the book of Ephesians where it says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Folks, we cannot allow time to go by unstewarded uh, for the glory of God. We must allow God to work in our lives so that we would be resembling of his son Jesus Christ. He says in Romans chapter 8, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And what purpose is that? For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine it to be conformed to who? To the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. This is why we must die to self and let Jesus live through us. This is why we must be willing to lose and surrender our lives so that he could have his way with us. If, we're or if we are to glorify God, then it must first and foremost come with the acknowledgement that we are to resemble the life of Jesus. By the way, can I say this? No matter how long you've been saved, if God hasn't called you to be in heaven, then there's still work to do in your life. There's still areas in your life that need to resemble Jesus more and more. We see here the fixed standard. Secondly, notice with me the forceful shaping. There's a term that potters use when working with clay. The term is called wedging. Wedging is the technique of mixing and rolling clay on a flat surface in order to make it consistent in its texture and also in order to make it air bubble free. It's a process of kneading the clay in order to push out any air from within. Air bubbles will cause issues when throwing the clay on the wheel, and if they remain during the time where it's fired up in the oven, the, uh, the air bubbles can cause the clay body to break or even explode. After wedging is complete, the potter then takes the clay on the center of his wheel and begins to shape with his hands with firm but gentle hands. The potter controls the speed of the wheel and begins to shape the form of the clay. 
how amazing that the sermon illustration, this object lesson, resembles for us what God desires to do in our own lives. I mentioned the term wedging, where you need the air bubbles out of the clay. I can resemble this with what I call God's breaking. You know, in order for you to be moldable, pliable, conformable, God first needs to break you. He needs to remove what doesn't belong. He needs to take away the dross and the dirt. He needs to keep all areas of our lives consistent and make sure that there is nothing that would hinder from his desire to shape. Are you allowing God to break you? Sometimes we resist the times when God breaks us, but rather I should say we should accept it by faith and embrace it with open arms saying, God, break me so then you can build me. We see that it is required for God to break us, but then soon after we find that God will begin to build us. He begins to shape our lives in the form that he desires. He begins to apply gentle but firm hands. He begins to fashion us according to his perfect will. And notice that the clay has to remain in the center of the wheel in order for the potter to be successful with his desire. And likewise, as believers, we must remain in the center of God's will if his will is to be done in our lives. Notice not only the fixed standard, the, for, the, the, the forceful shaping, but I also want to note here the full surrender. You see, as similar as the potter and the clay is with God and his working in our lives, there is one obvious difference between us and the clay. The difference is this, the clay, the literal clay, has no choice. The clay doesn't say to the potter, hey, potter, that's a little bit too hard. Could you soften up a little bit? <laughs> the clay doesn't say, all right, potter, this is a little bit too hot. Could you turn it down? No, the clay is fully surrendered. That's the difference between you and I, or sorry, the clay and us. The difference is that our flesh, our nature, wants to resist. We like to have control, don't we? We like to control the TV, the channels. <laughs> we like to control the temperature of the thermometer, right? We like to control what we have at our disposal. But sometimes we're afraid to give God control. You know, it's, I find it a little bit odd that we, as believers, often get frustrated when unbelievers refuse to trust God for their salvation. We're baffled that anyone would secure their eternity based on their good works or their religious affiliations. We're irritated when someone outrightly defies and refuses to believe that God exists. I've done it. I've been irritated when an unbeliever says, you know what, I don't want to believe in God. But what about Christians? Christians who live in doubt and disobedience. What about who refu Christians who refuse to trust God and to submit to his control? How are we any different? Can I ask you tonight, do you really trust God? 
is there an area in your life that you have not yet fully surrendered to him? What is it in your life that you have not yet given over to God's control? What is it in your life that God is pointing to, saying, give that up or give that to me, and you're telling God no? You see, as much as God wants to do his work in our life, it will not be accomplished until we first surrender. May we be like David in Psalm 139 who said to God, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God is watching. And as he's watched you, he's working. Working to conform you into the image of his son. Wanting you to surrender and to trust him in all that he does in your life. God is watching, God is working. But lastly, as we close tonight, and thank you for giving such great attention to the preaching of God's word, we see tonight as we close, God is weighing. By weighing, I mean trying or proving, validating. You see, once the potter has shaped the clay into a vessel, they will place it into an oven in order to dry and harden. When the heating process is complete, the vessel is then made ready for use. After God has accomplished his work in your life, he desires to make you useful in his work. It doesn't make sense for any Christian who God has saved, who God has sanctified, and yet is not involved in his service. It doesn't make sense for any Christian to refuse or delay their participation in serving and living for God. God desires for you as his vessel to be a part of his service. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, But in the great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every, what does it say? Good work. I notice in this weighing process, in this proving process, that there is an expected dependability. When God wants to weigh how useful you are, he's trying to give us an expectation, give us a realization that he's depending on us. God is depending on you to be ready and to be useful for whatever he has need of. Now, how can we stay useful for the service of God? Well, let me give you two things. First, in order to be useful for God, we must stay close. Be available and accessible for God to use. Be close to the Lord. Stay close by His side. Don't find yourself wandering away from Him, finding yourself in the filthiness of this world. Stay close to the Lord and stay close by His side. When you're by the Lord, he's able to take you and readily use you. God is ready to use anyone who is available and accessible, a vessel that is close by his side. Be a Christian that's always ready to serve, that when you see the need, you're willing to take the lead. Don't be a Christian who waits for somebody else to step up. Be the first one to serve.
Stay close if you want to be useful, but also, more importantly, stay clean. What I mean by that is that we ought to be consecrated. We ought to stay pure for the Lord. Don't do anything that gets your life dirty. The worst thing that you want to do in a restaurant is to drink out of a dirty cup. I don't know if you've done it or not. <laughs> Eat out of a bowl that's dirty. Use a utensil that's falling on the ground. There's just something very unappetizing about things that are dirty. They become useless. And as a Christian, God cannot use a dirty vessel. He cannot use a life that is filled with sin and the things of this world. We must keep washing our lives spiritually by the word of God, constantly kept ourselves pure by the Holy Spirit. We see here an expected uh, dependability, but then we find also an extended durability. What I mean by that is that God desires for us to serve him and to be useful for him long term. I'm sure, ladies, you guys know which pots and pants that you've had for many years, your reliable equipment, right? Uh, some of you men, you know what tools are in your shed or in your toolboxes, in your garage that has been faithful throughout the years, if not decades. That's the same thing that God expects of us. When God desires to use us, he desires to use us long term. He doesn't want us to be a Christian that only serves him when there's special events. He doesn't want us to be a Christian that only serves him on Sundays. He wants us to be useful every day, throughout the week, 24-7, when it's convenient or when it's not convenient, when it's easy or when it's hard. He wants us to be useful and durable long-term. I want to close by reading a poem that I had found online and thought that this was so helpful regarding God and how he chooses his vessels. I believe this is in the back of your note. It reads, The master was searching for a vessel to use. On the shelf there were many. Which one would he choose? Take me, cried the gold one. I'm shiny and bright. I'm of great value and I do things just right. My beauty and luster will outshine the rest. And for someone like you, master, gold would be the best. Unheeding the master passed on the brass, it was wide-mouthed and shallow and polished like glass. Here, here, cried the vessel, I know I will do. Place me on your table for all men to view. Look at me, called a goblet of crystal so clear. My transparency shows my contents so dear. Though fragile, fragile am I, I will serve you with pride, and I'm sure I'll be happy your house to abide." The master came next to a vessel of wood. Polished and carved, it solidly stood. You may use me, dear master, the wooden bowl said, but I'd rather you use me for fruit, not for bread. Then the master looked down and saw a vessel of clay. Empty and broken, it helplessly lay. No hope had the vessel that the master might choose to clean and make whole, to fill and to use. Ah! This is the vessel I've been hoping to find. I will mend and use it and make it all mine. I need not the vessel with pride of itself, nor the one who is narrow to sit on the shelf, nor the one who is big-mouthed and shallow and loud, nor one who displays his contents so proud. 
not the one who thinks he can do all things just right, but this plain earthy vessel filled with my power and might. Then gently he lifted the vessel of clay, mended and cleansed it, and filled it that day. Spoke to it kindly, there's work you must do. Just pour out to others as I pour into you. The potter and the clay. Tonight, are you surrendered in the hand of the potter? Tonight, maybe you're looking in your life and you're saying, God can't use me. You're wrong. God can use you. God wants to use you to bring honor and glory to his name. If you've surrendered your life to the Lord, let him have his way with you. Let him use your life in his service. Stay close to him. Stay clean. And serve God long term. Let's pray, shall we?